This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Today on CityCast Chicago, the school board is making moves, a bike path is coming to the far south side, and postal problems could be costing South Shore better internet service. I'm breaking it all down with Chalkbeat editor Becky Vivi and Block Club Chicago reporter Maxwell Evans. It's Friday, January 5th. I'm Simona Licea in for Jacoby Cochran, and this is what Chicago's talking about. Hey, Becky, welcome back to the show. Hey, Simone. Thanks for having me. Hey, Maxwell. Welcome back as well. Hello. So happy to be back on. Uh, You guys are on our first Friday News Roundup of 2024. Very exciting. And so I wanted to ask the question everybody asks in the new year. What are your New Year's resolutions for 2024? Becky, I'm going to start with you. What are you what are you hoping to do this year? I am hoping to lockbox my phone more often. Oh, that's a good one. Just, you know, put it in the drawer and ignore it for, you know, the hours that my, you know, kids are home. I mean, it's chaos anyway, so I don't know why I think I can respond to anything. I think that's a great one. And so hard, I think, especially for journalists uh, who just want to know what's going on. What if something happens? What if what if the sky is falling? We need to we need to know. I like that one a lot. Maxwell, what about you? What uh, What's your New Year's resolution this year? Well, I'm definitely going to be adding the uh, decreased phone time, put it away sometimes. That's a lovely one. My main one, though, is to catalog my record collection on uh, Discogs. Like, I really want to have like a document of everything I have. And by like going through them, it'll hopefully encourage me to listen to them more and, and engage with it more. Oh, that's so interesting. So I don't I don't collect vinyl. I don't listen to vinyl at all. But is Discogs like a particular... Is that like a program or do you just literally mean writing a list of everything that you have? No, it's actually a website uh, where oh. you can like tell what uh, quality your record, what condition your record is in, uh, uh, like what pressing it was. Some are more valuable than others, even if it's the same album. So, yeah, if I ever am uh, in need of cash and need to get rid of this massive collection, I, I can kind of get a sense for, for what it'll do for me. Well, that's awesome. I talked a little bit earlier this week about my New Year's resolution, which is just to incorporate more art into my life. I have a drawing class that's going to be starting back up. So listeners have already heard about what I am hoping to do, and I'm going to keep it vague so that <laughs> I don't have to uh, be back here this time next year saying that I failed. <laughs> We're going to keep it keep it attainable here. Well, moving on to the big stories of the new year so far, uh, Becky, the school board, the Chicago school board has been making a few moves indicating how it's going to be operating here in the near future. Right before the new year, there was a resolution that came down. We talked about it uh, on our show as well, sort of detailing what the board was hoping to do around school choice, moving away from school choice, moving away from selective enrollment, charter, those types of schools. And then this week, we had an, another some reporting that came out saying that 
the school board is considering removing police officers from all schools. Can you tell us a little bit more about that second story about kind of what's going on with the with police officers there? Sure. And this was uh, Sarah Karp over at WBEZ first reported this story. And people may recall the school district um, essentially said to local school councils, it's up to you if you want to keep your school resource officers. Um, And there was a series of votes from local school councils where they removed their school resource officers. That meant that the contract that the board held with the police department which used to be like $33 million, shrunk. It is now around $10 million to keep the school resource officers in the schools where the local council has decided they wanted to keep them. And this story reported by Sarah earlier this week is essentially that the board is considering ending that contract altogether, basically making a, a central decision by this board to remove officer presence from schools. Now, schools may still have security officers, which are employed by the school board, but they wouldn't be CPD officers. And this has been a huge debate, right, for a number of reasons. There has been a real push from the Chicago Teachers Union, social justice advocates, you know, sort of saying that when you have police officers at schools, it leads to over-policing of students, particularly black and brown students, where a lot of these officers are, are still placed. And then, of course, On the flip side of that, you have individual schools who are like, well, our community, we want the officer in the school. We think that that it's a good idea. And so it's sort of an interesting to to see this coming out that, you know, the board wholesale may just say at some point this year, actually, no, no police officers at any of the schools. It seems like a really big move, but something that Mayor Brandon Johnson uh, talked Mm -hmm. about on the campaign trail, right? Right. So Mayor Brandon Johnson does lean toward that social justice um, activist viewpoint that cops do not belong in schools, that cops only fuel the school to prison pipeline. They don't actually provide additional safety. And we saw that debate in 2020 before he was mayor. And the decision then was, you know, let's let local communities decide. And so it's very interesting to have him say, now, well, we're going to make a decision now that I'm in office kind of from the top down. And I think that's gotten some controversy as well, because, you know, I think for being uh, a person who really wanted to empower and wants to empower local school communities to sort of take that decision away from them, some people are saying, well, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> we we wanted that decision to still rest in our hands. And you're kind of taking it away by having your board do this. And similarly, with the school choice resolution, also something where Johnson has sort of has indicated that he would like to move away from school choice and more focus on neighborhood schools. You know, what do we know so far about what this resolution actually means and what it doesn't mean? Sure. So this resolution is a strong statement by the school board saying they want to move away from this system that really pit schools against one another and 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 instead really focus on resourcing all schools, including neighborhood schools, which have seen disinvestment as students have 
left those schools to go to these specialty schools. So, but the resolution doesn't necessarily explicitly state that they're going to close schools or that they're going to change specific policies. However, it's not clear what they will do next, but they potentially might. And they are working on a five-year strategic plan that I think they intend to pass in 2024 before we get uh, a new school board, which people will vote on in November and will be sworn in next January of 2025. We'll have a hybrid elected school board that could come in and change it all again. That's, I think, what's so wild about this kind of entirely is, right, we have this big change coming to the way the school board is going to function, the way schools are governed, that is coming very, very quickly down the pike. What do you think these sort of intentions, these big moves, uh, or at least moves that we think are coming, what do you think that says about sort of Johnson's and the board's disposition towards CPS right now and sort of the uh, towards Chicago schools in general? Well, being a teacher and a former teachers union organizer, I think that they wanted to have some say, some more say over the direction of the school system. And now that they're person is in the mayor's office and has the ability to do that. He has one year before an elected school board to make those moves. And so here we are. This is what's happening. And it's 2024. I I think it's going to be a really fascinating year to watch um, and a fascinating transition to see how that all plays out and really what that impact is on the ground for kids, for students, for teachers. Um, I think that's I don't want us to lose sight of that either. Absolutely. And that's definitely something we're going to be watching as the year unfolds. Maxwell, you wrote a story uh, this week about a bike lane, a multi-use path coming to 130th Street soon. Tell us a little bit about that. What is it? What's supposed to happen there? And and how close are we to, to construction actually happening? Yeah, for sure. So the uh, city had announced that it's uh, starting very early preliminary work on building a side path on 130th Street near Altgeld Gardens and surrounding communities. Uh, This would be a uh, a pedestrian and bicycling path that would kind of better connect that area, not only with other cycling infrastructure like the major Taylor Trail on the southwest side, but also with uh, with itself. Like there is a lot of disconnected sidewalks in that immediate community. Neighbors have complained for years and years about not even having their own immediate neighborhood be walkable, let alone accessing the other parts of the city that they're disconnected from. And so, yeah, this project is stirring some excitement among community members who feel it can kind of connect them with the rest of the city in a way that they haven't before. But um, in terms of timeline, that's where things get a little eh, because it's, it's really not looking like it'll be anytime soon. This is very early work that hasn't started yet in terms of a feasibility study, an environmental study. There's not an official route selected or design selected or anything at this point. But after years and years of no movement, this is uh, at least a sign of things to come that, that neighbors are getting excited about on the far south side. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because... The thought, too, is that this path, in addition to connecting to the Major Taylor Trail, which you mentioned, also connecting to the future Alcal Garden Station on the Red Line, if and when the Red Line is extended uh, to the far south side. We talked a little bit about that last week. Um, one of our most downloaded episodes this year actually was about the mm. extension of the of the Red Line. People are really clamoring for far south siders in particular that that Red Line. And we also know that this issue that far south siders face with 
walkable infrastructure, bike infrastructure, or lack of it, that that's true, you know, across the South side, um, that, you know, there's, there's a really big disparity in sort of what kinds of paths are available. Do we have any idea yet about what this path will look like? I know it's supposed to serve both pedestrians and cyclists. I mean, what's kind of the, the vision here? I think that's what's going to be worked out in the months to come. Uh, that, that's what this process is that's starting will, will be all about is picking a design, figuring out and meeting with neighbors what exactly is best for their community. Um, and at this point, uh, uh, frankly, anything would be an improvement. But it, even that being said, obviously, you want to make this as good as it possibly can be. You want to make sure that it encourages people to use it and isn't just a throwaway, here you go, be happy with whatever you get type situation. So uh, advocates are definitely encouraging their neighbors to come out to community meetings and, and kind of guide that process so it, it meets their needs instead of just being whatever the city decides. Can you tell us sort of what the next milestone is uh, for this project? What's the next thing you'll be looking out for? Yeah, so I'll be looking out for the announcement of those community meetings where people can get engaged with this process. Uh, they can explain what struggles they faced in the years without this sort of infrastructure and what benefits it could bring to them once it's built. So I think it could spur some talk about how do we make it easier to get around the Riverdale community area and better connect it with the rest of the city since it does sit so far off, uh, relatively speaking, from from the neighborhoods that surround it. Yeah, even right. Exactly. Even just connecting the far southwest and far southeast sides, right, to to create better paths that way. And I've even heard from neighbors who say that uh, the Hedgewish neighborhood, which isn't really all that far, uh, uh, all told from Riverdale, that it's difficult to even get a couple miles over to Hedgewish. So we're not talking about like, oh, we want to connect Howard Street with 130th. It's like we just want to get around our immediate area in a, in a more easy fashion. Becky, Chalkbeat had a story this week about schools that have been designated by the state as exemplary and that in Chicago, only five majority black schools had that designation. Can you tell us a little bit more uh, about this reporting and the, the schools that you looked at? Sure. So every year the state assigns these designations to every school in the state. There are five total and exemplary essentially is the top 10 percent overall performance of schools, so the best schools in the top 10% of schools in the state. And we took a look, Crystal Paul, a, a wonderful writer on the South Side, actually came to me with this story saying, you know, my neighborhood school earned this designation. I think they're one of the only Black majority schools to have earned it. And I, so we started digging into the data and found that statewide, there are only seven majority Black schools that are in that exemplary level, and five are in CPS, but only one of those five is a neighborhood school. So uh, Crystal dug in and looked at what makes those schools exemplary, and also we we took a look at all of the data and we visualized it for people if they want to go check it out at chalkbeat.org. It's really fascinating look at how these designations sort of are spread across different school types and, and schools you know, who has access to these highest quality schools. And that's uh, the neighborhood school uh, highlighted in this story, Kate Star Kellogg Elementary. How are these designations determined? Is it test scores? Is it, you know, what goes into this? Yeah, it is a mix of test scores, test score growth. 
chronic absenteeism, how frequently kids are absent from school. At the high school level, graduation rate plays a, a big part in the calculation. And it's a mix of those. It's kind of a complex calculation of all of those factors that, that feed into a school's overall uh, designation. And when we talked to folks at Kellogg, when Crystal visited there, it was really interesting. Kellogg was actually a school that CPS considered at one point closing for over because another school nearby was overcrowded and they needed the building. And it really rallied the community, the parents together to um, save Kellogg. And that really infused a level of parent involvement that the principal says is one of the, the key ingredients to having a successful school. So it's a really good read. I found it to be sort of interesting, especially given that CPS no longer uses levels. We have to kind of get used to these new designations as sort of the the determining definitions of, of, of what school quality might look like. And of course, a lot of things go into a, a school's rating or quality. And at the end of the day, people have to sort of, you know, decide for themselves what they feel about their schools um, and, and what can make them really exemplary. Right. Those levels that you mentioned were sort of uh, taken away because they were seen as overly punitive, right? Like right. if you, you know, schools that got low levels, it became this sort of self-fulfilling cycle of, well, it became then very hard to, you know, uh, get the sort of resources to those schools at the low levels and they, they sort of persisted. But as you said, there has to be some way to measure right. sort of how well is the school educating children? How well are these kids faring when they, you know, come out of these schools? And so trying to balance those two needs. Yeah. And one thing I learned about the state designations is if you're not in the top two, if you're in one of the bottom three of those five, there is some additional funding you get in order to to improve. So that was a change made about five years ago, which takes it from being punitive to being more supportive, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I I, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, it, 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 it is, you know, whenever we see data like this, I feel like it's always one of those things where it's like, well, maybe it's not the most surprising thing. We know that that there's a lot of segregation in CPS. We know that there's a lot of disparities in CPS whenever we are looking at the demographics of the students uh, in a given school. But it's, again, yet another data point that just kind of allows us to to survey you know, what is happening across our schools? What are, What is exemplary? What does that mean? Yeah. The state even admitted that these things are tied to broader inequities and mm -hmm. broader systems and that they often are just a reflection of those systems and inequities. And so I, did, I didn't know also that they were uh, putting more resources toward the lower performers. And so I thought that was also, you know, a change and an interesting thing for people to kind of grapple with and, and think about. It's a good read. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that to us, Becky. Maxwell, you had a story that you wanted to, to sh shed some more light on in South Shore. And it's kind of a, a combination of things happening here where it appears that mail problems with the posts that have plagued the neighborhood for, for years may be putting internet access improvements or internet service improvements at risk for those residents. What is going on here? Yeah, so it's a, a digital divide, quote unquote, uh, in South Shore compared to other parts in Chicago is something that 
uh, University of Chicago researchers have been uh, really diving into over the last few years, and, and I've been covering it for, for a, a couple of years as they've gone through that process. And so it's been really interesting to kind of see this push to improve broadband access, speeds, quality, everything about the internet in, in my home neighborhood of South Shore. So I definitely selfishly want to have better internet service in my immediate area. And so, uh, uh, yeah, this, this sounds like a wonderful push, but as the researchers were trying to uh, get all the data they needed to access a portion of that funding, they had sent out surveys in the mail to residents in Logan Square and in South Shore, and they received about 60 responses from Logan Square, still pretty low rate of response, but at least they got something from the, the residents in Logan Square. And after a few weeks, they still had zero from South Shore. And so um, that kind of raised red flags. It's like, well, we might expect some sort of low responses, like it's a mailing, maybe people aren't interested, but it is kind of a free $50 to participate in a study. Why would nobody want, nobody want Not to participate one person, in right. that? Not a single person. And so they filed a complaint with the Postal Service, tried to figure out what had happened. And the Postal Service's response was basically just to tell them how to do the mass mailing that they had already done. In the emails that I reviewed between the researchers and the Postal Service, there was no information about here's the status of your shipment, here's where we lost your shipment, here's where we didn't lose it, it just, nobody responded. The Postal Service didn't give me any clarity either. They said that any issues would pretty much be between the Postal Service and the customer, and that's kind of where it ended. And so the researchers are scrambling to get people to either reach out to them and try and access these devices that will track internet speeds without collecting any data about what you're doing on the internet, or you can also go to a University of Chicago speed test website, which I've actually done. If you do it three times before the deadline for this, uh, this study in a couple of weeks, you are able to uh, kind of give them a sense of how your internet speeds are in South Shore. So uh, if you check out that story, you can learn about how to participate in this, how to participate in the study, which will extend even beyond the next couple of weeks. It's going to be a, a much longer project, but yeah, this focus and this push is really to access this unprecedented federal funding and hopefully get more uh, infrastructure improvements in South Shore. And it's right. This is another example of like why the data and the data collection is important, right? These researchers at University of Chicago need to know that, you know, need to know who is having trouble with Internet speeds, need to sort of demonstrate that it's an issue in order to go to the feds and say, hey, we have a problem here. Can you please give us some some money? And I think the the part that was interesting to me when I was reading this story was, you know, that residents of Sh South Shore have previously complained about about mail, other mail problems, right, about not receiving mail on time. Yeah. And I uh, again, living in the neighborhood, I can speak to that on, on an anecdotal level, too. I know. During the pandemic, especially, there would be weeks where I didn't get mail. And then all of a sudden, I've got 75 pieces of mail from those few weeks. Or I went to the, uh, uh, I was waiting on one of my stimulus checks for weeks and weeks and weeks and actually was told it was delivered when it was stuck at the post, post office and uh, uh, going to the post office, waiting for like three hours. And then I get there and they're like, oh, well, we don't see your check back here. We see it's delivered and having to wait even longer as they figure out and then eventually find where it is. So um, I, I think the pandemic has really caused uh, mail problems for not only South Shore, but uh, uh, the entire South Side. I mean, post offices in Bronzeville, Woodlawn, all, all, all around the South Shore, greater South Shore area, have been facing similar problems, um, and in some cases, even dating before the pandemic as well. 
And I, you know, I don't want to make too extreme, like, I don't want to extrapolate too much here, but I do think there is, you know, uh, we can kind of see the ways that, you know, disparities can compound, right, in these neighborhoods, like the when you don't have for example, the the you can't trust that your mail is going to come in on time to participate in this thing that could get you some more funding to improve this other service. Maybe this other service also doesn't get improved. You know what I mean? Like it's it's yeah. this it's this sort of it's a it's an example of how frustrating it it it, it can be and how everything's just kind of build up on top of each other. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that uh, that sort of like feedback loop of, of inequities is something that uh, in a lot of different stories that, that you can cover on the South Side, it, it is like that. It's, it's never one specific thing with no ties to any other inequities. It always seems to be, well, here's an education issue because or uh, here's a here's a, a, a economic issue because people are struggling with their education. Or in this case, here's a chance to improve Internet that's being risked by the struggling mail infrastructure. And yeah, it, it really everything is interconnected in that way, it seems like. Well, on a brighter note, we never end without doing a little bit of good news. Every single episode, I don't sing. Jacoby's a singer. Uh, I was I'm sorry. For the sing. Do you want to sing? You can <laughs> sing it, Maxwell, if you want. Good news. Yeah. Oh, I love harmony when J- Jacoby does it. <laughs> He'll be back. He'll be back next week, and you'll get it. You'll get it. I promise. Becky, you've got a couple stories from student perspectives that you wanted to highlight. Uh, mm. What What's going on? Well, the first one is by Nader Issa at the Sun-Times, who took a look at New Year's Eve plans by grammar school students. And it just was such a fun read going into New Year's Eve, thinking about, oh my gosh, when I was little, like, what did I do on New Year's Eve? Sparkling grape juice, that sort of thing. But the other one I really wanted to highlight that I feel like is also a story that needs more attention was published a little earlier in December. And it was about, it was called Mabuba I think I'm pronouncing that right, Mamuba finds her voice. And it was by Ellie Fishman, who's a freelance writer. And it's about this Afghan immigrant who immigrated here with her family, deaf, and enrolled in a Chicago public school and essentially learned ASL, at, you know, starting from nothing. And it's just such an amazing, lovely story. Um, brought me to tears when I read it. And I think it's just also a, a lovely portrait of individuals helping other individuals and just an amazing, an amazing story about the the, the work of teachers and, and the journey of immigrants. And I, I just thought it was such a, an amazing story. And I encourage people to to go read it if they missed it. Yeah, Ellie, uh, a friend of the show um, who has been covering Chicago's refugee communities um, for for a long time now. And I would say in both stories, if even if you don't read all the text, which you should, you should read it all. The photos on both stories, just delightful. Like I just hearing kids voices, seeing pictures that like the these portraits of the kids in the Sun Times are just so cute. And just a, just a delight. Really appreciate you bringing these to our attention. Maxwell, what's some good news that you would like to share with the people today? Yeah, so uh, this comes from the Hyde Park Herald, which had reported on the Struggle Beard Bakery in Hyde Park. Um, I actually got a chance to visit the bakery and profile them uh, several weeks ago. And uh, as I'm currently rocking a Struggle Beard, it was something I was able to like really <laughs> identify with. I thought that was just such a funny name. Uh, but yeah, the, the Herald reports uh, that the uh, Struggle Beard Bakery is receiving $15,000 uh, through the Black Kitchen Initiative Grant Program. 
Um, this is a business that opened during the winter, obviously a lower foot traffic time for uh, people going through the hyper Harper Court development in Hyde Park. So this money, I'm certain, will be able to, to help this business get off the ground. And really going in there, the energy is, is, is it's a lot of fun. Uh, the owner is Quentin McNair, the lead baker. Um, he's just got such a out there personality, like very outgoing, very friendly, very funny. And uh, uh, kind of sitting in there as I worked for a couple hours, getting to see him interact with the customers, uh, interact with his uh, employees and the way the employees would uh, joke around and like roast him. And so I thought it was a, a great thing to see that this national grant program, giving them a, a $15,000 grant to, to make sure they get through this uh, difficult winter, winter business season. I love that. I also loved the name Struggle Beard when you sent this to me. <laughs> um, number one, thanks for always putting us on to great. I feel like you've always got a great local business to highlight uh, in uh, on the South Side, Maxwell. Um, my good news is a little bit more of a personal good news. Um, I am just really great. I'm grateful for all the gifts I got over the holiday season. But one gift in particular was uh, my boyfriend got me the fluffiest blanket on the planet <laughs> and it has pockets for your feet. <gasps> Shut yeah. up. Yes. <laughs> I need this. You can fully burrito yourself and it has become my go-to nap blanket so I can burrito myself after a long day of podcast producing <laughs> and... Yeah and pockets and take a little take a little nap and be fully enveloped and warm and uh it's just delightful and it's been the thing that's uh getting me back into the swing of things this week it's been that nap blanket so that's my good news is is nap time i don't know if you guys are nap people how do you feel about naps oh i wish i could take naps i my husband <laughs> my husband's a napper and i have children so i should nap when they nap but i don't <laughs> nap i have too much i don't know busy body stuff i'm trying to get done i know how that goes Love a good nap. Maybe I need the blanket, the blanket, the foot pocket, and then I could nap. Yeah. Make it your New Year's resolution. Naps 2024. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to change that. No more record uh, <laughs> uh, cataloging. It's naps only. Maybe this is the year, friends, that we that we get it done. Maxwell Evans with Walk Club Chicago and Becky Vivi with Chalk Beach Chicago. Thank you both so much for uh, taking the time and talking with me today. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you. That's all for today here on CityCast Chicago. Our producers are Michelle Navarro, Elizabeth Kama, and Dylan Brogan. Our newsletter editor is Sydney Madden. Music is by Sam Thousand, All the Kimonos, and Mark Greenberg from the Mayfair Workshop. Host Jacoby Cochran will be back later next week. One more piece of news before I let you go in case you missed it. Former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan's corruption trial will be delayed until October while the U.S. Supreme Court deliberates on a separate case out of Northwest Indiana. What's the case and how is it relevant here? We'll have more in Monday's newsletter, so make sure you're subscribed at chicago.citycast.fm. We'll also be back in your feeds Monday morning with more news from around the city. Talk to you then. Oh. 